Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. I think it was probably a trying time for Andy sitting across from me, but he set up a little black and white TV in the kitchen for me and the Yankees were on and I was a Yankees guy and he put it on. And he kept just, he'd walk over a couple hours and just walk up and just say, uh, do you like famous Amos cookies? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd drop off a cookie and walk away. Welcome to episode 391, Sam Hollander. That was at, there's a little driving range near my house. I went to it for like 30 minutes yesterday. Haven't my golf clubs in the back of the car. Had a little time to kill. And so I stopped and hit some balls. And I was listening to the Weezer song Records, the new song. I got records in my head. And I hear records yeah. in my head everywhere that I go. And so Sam Hollander wrote that song. And we talk about it coming up in a minute. But that's new Weezer. But I could list you, and I think I probably will, but I'm going to say he's got a book called 21 Hit Wonder. And you can get it at samhollandersongs.com or you can search 21 Hit Wonder on Amazon. That being said, I felt like I could have done two to three hours with Sam. He just had a story about everything from who his babysitter was, his parents, all the songs that he wrote. And I can list some of them here. Uh, Panic at the Disco, High Hopes. Fits in the Tantrums, Hand Clap. Boys Like Girls, The Great Escape. Gym Class Heroes, he produced this one, uh, Cupid Chokehold, Metro Station, Shake It. He's just got so much. He's got over 22 U.S. Top 40 hits, 10 number ones, 10 top fives, 87 top tens. Globally, his songs have streamed over 5 billion times. In 2019, he held the number one position on the Billboard Rock Songwriters Chart for nine weeks, which was a year-end record. I don't know I like the guy. You know, I always will kind of feel their energy and hopefully give that back to them so they feel comfortable. And what I liked about Sam was, he's like, hey, man, what's up? Sam, we're hanging out, we're chilling. He's so Chill, dry. Laid back. Sometimes I didn't know if he was joking or not. And then I just sit there and be like, I'm going to let you say the next thing because I don't know if you're kidding or not. Like talking about the Baha men when he worked with them. 
there was just a lot where I was like, I don't know if he's kidding. And then sometimes he wasn't kidding. Especially the kids bop stuff. Yeah, kids bop. I was like, is this a joke? Turns out it wasn't a joke. So just a really cool story. I mean, Sam spent 30 years just kind of fighting through the songwriting and the rapping and the producing. And he put all this in a book and he's speaking at a lot of places and he's donating all the money to musicians on call. It's a very inspiring story. It's a very entertaining story. And again, samhollandersongs.com or 21 Hit Wonder. That's the name of the book. You can buy it on Amazon. What was your main takeaway here, Mike, with Sam? That you can get it start later in life. Yeah, he didn't write his first number one till 35. 35. That's crazy. After he had failed doing other things. Hard. Then, you know, there's a story. I never want to say too much in this part of it because it's so good. But there's one story about a tragedy happening, like right when he's about to launch something. So if it wasn't him failing, it was like things happening around it that, Cause things not to go right. But then he hit it. And I hope you like it. I enjoyed it a whole bunch. Here he is. And follow him on Instagram. If you even want to see what his face looks like, I like to do that. At Sam Hollander. And here he is. Sam, how is your day today? Hey, what's up, Bobby? Pretty good? Pretty glorious, man. You know, I here's my problem. The shirt I'm wearing, the t-shirt, I think it's a, women, a woman's shirt. This one. I didn't realize it. And then I was looking in the mirror and I was like, that's a woman's shirt. So I put this on over the top, so you think I was at least kind of cool. Was that from your Zumba class? You know, I, that's the one class I haven't done, okay. Zumba. Have you ever been to Zumba? Um, you know, honestly, I, I don't want to like, make this awkward for you, but I actually trademarked the name Zumba. I actually created Zumba. You did not. I am the forbidden dance. You did not yeah. trademark Zumba. I mean, you've done everything else. All right, man. Have you ever been to a Zumba class, though? Um, I've actually witnessed a Zumba class. But you haven't done it? No, look at me. Have you done Taibo? Back in the day, I sue Taibo. Can I say something true? Yeah, I actually had a song on a Taibo uh, VHS. Really, one hundred percent true. With Billy, Billy Blanks. Blanks, baby, Billy Blanks. So, what song was that though? Um, it was called Supersonic Love, and the royalties from that would definitely paid for the bottle of water you guys uh, were nice <laughs> enough to push in my direction. So, about. it wasn't like a massive song they wanted to put in it. No, no, it was it was a filler song. It was a song that of like many of my other early releases that was um, dropped by a record label and I found a way to make $5 off of it. So, You know, when I was going through your entire catalog of songs you wrote and produced and it's, it's, it's so many massive hits and, you know, the song that I really liked of yours that I felt like was going to like, and it still is sometimes because they play a clip of it in, the, in um, stadiums all the time, is Hand Clap. That's a fun little ditty. Yeah, because they do a lot of the... In the stadiums. I was a pioneer in jock jams. You know what I mean? That's a jock jam. It's like, remember the Tommy Boy jock jams compilation? Absolutely. Right. I, I had jock jam one in Fuego. Yes. I had jock jam two. Are you ready for this? Dun, 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 dun. And then it was just one to one to the other. I went, I actually sat in on the, uh, the commercial for Jack James 2, my friend Kennedy directed it, and I uh, I got to watch Michael Buffer do his thing in real time on a commercial, which was pretty cool. Because he does in the middle of the Jock Jam. Yes. Even the single version, when I was on, because I, I did pop radio for a long time, he would do the, let's get, get ready, ready to rumble. Right. Bam, 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 bam. Oh, man. That's yeah. like. So Hand Clap was my version of a Jock Jam, I guess. I don't think it was necessarily constructed that way, but um, it's funny. I mean, it really, it's still played it every sporting thing around the world and it's neat especially in new york because i hear it you know at the yankee games at the nick games at the neck games it's kind of fun do you ever stand up and wave 
That's what I would do when you that's played to stand up. Be like, that's that's me. If, if I do that, then that's the moment <laughs> they stop playing it. When they realize what I look like, that'll be the end of it. When you, when when I look at again your massive body of work, there are so many, even micro hooks or catchy things that I think na 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 na. That was, that was a fun. Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, that, that, I'm not responsible for that. I just took a free ride on it. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. But it's That's, a nice little ditty. No, I, yeah, man. here's the thing. One thing I would say is I um I love immediacy in music. You know what I mean? And I think it's born out of the fact that I think most kids today have you know severely warped attention spans. So when I'm digging in, I'm really just trying to get it in the intro immediately and you know were you TikTok it, before it was TikTok that's what it sounds like I mean I gotta you tell got a you few something. seconds I'll put it like this I, if I had been born in a previous decade I would not have been able to make Emerson Lake and Palmer records you know what I mean <laughs> it would have been a very different wiring so there's no 12 minute intro in my vocab so I was listening yesterday to Derek and the Dominoes Layla and you know the song plays and Layla <laughs> it's not the clapped and unplugged it's the you know the mm-hmm. original you know and at the end it's a five-minute piano sojourn. Piano. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> That's departure. That's a whole different ever. time. Look, man, I wish I wish I could have been that guy. But truthfully, I would have been the guy who would have said to them, "And they're, hey, man, let's edit this thing down. Let's let's make it to like two minutes and forty seconds of joy." Yeah, I mean, it was, and then and I can enjoy older songs from before even you know we were making anything creatively. Yeah. It's jokes or music. I can enjoy the process and how culture was different then and. But even that outro and that song, I was like, were they high? Drugs. Yeah, it was just, this, it just continued on and on. And I've heard it a hundred times. But as I'm in my car and I, we have an old Bronco that just has terrestrial radio only. Awesome. And I was like, I, I don't know what the channels are, so I'm not going to change it. So I'm going to listen to this four minute outro of the entire Layla. You, you got to stick it out. Which is the exact opposite of na 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 na, because yeah. immediately you got us with Cupid's chokehold. You know what? That that was the genius of Travi McCoy. I mean, he was driving it, and he once again he let me hitch onto his wagon on that one. But um, no, it's just I really, really um, I do like uh, going for the jugular early on. You know, and maybe it's I have no sense of dynamic anymore, and I'm just warped. But I really just like things, just sort of from the from initial onset. I just wanted to hit. You what know? where did that come from, or what music did you like, or what was it that you didn't like so much that made you go, "We got to grab them quick." Well, I don't know. I mean, I I, I grew up. I was the the definitive KTL kid. You know what I mean? I was like this. You know, late seventies, early eighties. I had all those KTL collections, and that's what I loved because it was. It was so, um, it wasn't genre specific for the most part, you know? So you could have Seals and Crofts next to David Gates, next to, um, you know, next to uh, the Bellamy Brothers, next to the Bee Gees or some disco stuff or Kiss. So that was my introduction to music. And the one thing I would say is, you know, it was usually the three minute edit edit on all those songs. They weren't going to let anything go extended. So I began to hear songs truly as like a three minute single. And I remember, I remember when I was 20 or so and Dramarama hit and I remember hearing, uh, you know, not Dramarama. Uh, what's the, what's the Delamitri with Roll to Me, right? When Roll to Me hit. Yeah. But that thing's like two minutes and two seconds. Roll to Me. It's the fastest yeah. song in history. And what I realized about that song was one reason why I crushed it radio is because you could fit it into any slot going to a commercial. You know, it was like, it was so short that it mm-hmm. could work as a bumper to things. So then I just sort of got into that notion. So I guess I am a TikTok pioneer, uh, Bobby. What about, and I, I, that's what I thought because yeah. everything goes quick, short attention span. You hit us quick. You give us what we're going to need to know when that song's over. 
And if we don't listen to all of it, that's fine. That's but if we do, we got it. Yeah, I can do that with many of your songs. Make, Shake It, Metro can, Station. Shake It's a Zumba classic. Now, see, when you talk about Zumba, you lose me a little bit, and I think you're kidding because you only witnessed one. If you said Taibo, I'd believe you because you probably saw a few more of those since you made five bucks off of it. I wouldn't say a few more, Bobby. <laughs> uh, growing up in New York, how yeah. much of your childhood to early adulthood were you there mostly? I was there every day. I mean, the, the city was like... The, Until what age? I, you know, I was in, the, in New York till I was the age of 40. Okay. So I never left. So does that mean you're a Billy Joel guy? I'm a Springsteen and Billy Joel guy, which is kind of a rarity. You know what I mean? They're, they're, in, the, um, in the tri-state area, I do sometimes feel there's like a defined Mason-Dixon between the two. It's almost Mets-Yankees. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I'm definitely a Yankees. Um, but for Billy, you know... It's funny because Billy's thing, I love on the theatricality and I love um, the nods to, um, you know, Sinatra and all the, you know, sort of uh, Rat Pack kind of crooners. Some of the, the way he fused like theatrical croonerdom, you know, and then Springsteen, I love the wordplay. So Springsteen was a huge influence for me because I really, really dug, especially on Greetings from Asbury Park, that first record. Um, there's, it's, you know, he's pulling all this Dylan stuff. But there's just something about what he was doing melodically on that first record that blew my head. That was one of my first favorite records. So There had to be so much music around you, even if you didn't get, get to go to it, just be living in New York City. I mean, I grew up in Mountain Pine, Arkansas. There was no music around me. Right. So anything I got had to be only from the radio or driving to get a tape, which later turned into a CD. So it was like the nearest big venue. Hour and a half. And, wow. it, was, and it was Little Rock. Wow. And it's another animal, every so. three months. Right. You know, right. so... Was it important to whomever was raising you to make sure that you were cultured at all while living in New York? A thousand percent. Like, you know, I was exposed to the arts early on. My, my um, I know this will appeal to you, but my dad was a modern dancer. And I know you, you're very yeah, well-versed very, in the very dance. Very modern and dancing. Yeah, well, you're a champion, yeah, dance absolutely champion. Absolutely world champion. Um, so uh, it's very, very important to... Um, my, you know, my dad was a dancer, and then he became an architect. But he was a modern. Da- he was a professional dancer at what eighteen. What kind of dancer? What did he specialize in? He was with uh, the Jose Limon group doing modern dance in the nineteen fifties. And how did he get started in that? He started dancing at like eleven. Was professional at seventeen. Toured the entire world. Broke every toe on both feet. By the time he was twenty three, went back to Yale and became a uh, architect. Do you remember him dancing at all? No, I wasn't. Okay, alive. so you were I'm not two hundred. Yeah, jeez, man. But I don't know if he still like danced no. recreationally. He didn't dance recreationally, but you know what's funny? He would sway around the room. He was an incredible guy, man. He was just so rhythmic and cool. So when I listen to music and I sort of was less versed in, in in my steps, I would watch him in the background listen to music, and the way he flowed was magical. It was beautiful. And my mom was an artist too, so. Um, what, I would, your mom was what kind of artist? My mom was a heavy cat, man. My mom was in, uh, like really like the, uh, she was an interior uh, designer, but she came from the, the bottom of this thing. She just started at the very pit of this thing and she became an expert on Victorian era furniture and which was a very strange sort of, um, lane. And she really became like one of the foremost experts on it overnight and started doing apartments. But when I was a little kid, she was sort of carrying our thing and she uh she did Mick Jagger's apartment uh, Yves Saint Laurent's apartment all these sort of Studio 54 era things and you know when I was a little guy this is probably how I got a book deal but when I was a little guy you know and I was always pleading to, for her to take me to record shops one day she just she said I'm gonna drop you off at a babysitter's house I gotta get rid of you and she dropped me off at Andy Warhol's and Andy Warhol used to babysit me as a little kid which is and, wild I know that you wrote, you wrote about that in your book 
It's true. And my next question was, is your book true or lies? And so you answer yeah. that it's true too. Yeah. 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 That's good. I like yeah. that because that means Thanks. we can keep going here. Thanks. Yeah, that's good. Andy Warhol as a babysitter. Do you have memories of that or was it before you were? No, I do. I, I do. Um, it, it happened, th- I want to say three, three, maybe a fourth time. And then he used to come to our house too. Um, I have very distinct memories because this was somebody who probably wasn't that stoked to hang out with like a greasy little kid <laughs> with nose boogers running down his face, you know? So it was, um, I think it was probably a trying time for Andy sitting across from me, but it, you know, he, he, he set up a little black and white TV in the kitchen for me and uh, was a little, little black and white TV and the Yankees were on and I was a Yankees guy and he put it on and he kept just, he'd walk over a couple hours and just walk up and just say, uh, do you like famous Amos cookies? <laughs> and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And drop off a cookie and walk away. <laughs> that, was, that was about the extent of our fraternization, but he was pretty cool. Like, you know, your mom and dad are very interesting to me because they, but so they pushed the arts. So yeah, it, it when I played high school, culture childhood. Yeah. When I played high school football, they thought literally like I had failed. How did they meet? Do you know? Um, I do know my mom was widowed at, um, 23 and she was widowed and she was a single mom. And she met my dad through a friend in the city, just like casually. And so I assume their their bond was something artistic, creative. It sounds like they both have that spirit inside of them. They were incredible, man. They were like both like their both of their aesthetics were at like a, a level I've never seen. They were both everything about them. You know, they lived in this little studio apartment in the city, and they tricked this thing out to such an extent in like 1969 or before I was born but it was in magazines it was featured because the design level of design was so sophisticated and cool like they were just like they were brilliant minds what do you remember as far as their parenting what what was the priority from them to you as for just being a good human like what were they trying to teach you well I gotta be honest with you they were very they were very decent people and um you know I think the number one thing they wanted to teach me one was aspirational things that everything was obtainable you know i i was blessed to have um like a support network that uh, other kids didn't have you know what i mean like and that's never been lost on me like when you have when you're entering this business and you have two parents who are cheering for you hoping that you enter something or do something different or color outside the lines that's pretty cool you know so i would say i was blessed with that and then you know they they were just they were they were so kind and they're so gracious in our town specifically we lived an hour north in um, northern westchester and the way they approached everybody they were so they were known they'd just be like very generous decent people like they would talk to everybody there's one thing that was pushed on me early on it's just you know have no fear of talking to people look people in the eye and like honestly just like be a human you know i ask all the childhood stuff because i grew into a sociopath I was going to get there later about that specifically, but it's, you know, when I'm reading about you and and reading different parts of the book, the mic was like, you got to read this, you got to read this, that you didn't have a hit until you were 35. Is that accurate? That's completely true. Going from memory. Now, you had these parents that said you can do anything. They didn't really set boundaries for you except the boundary of you can push the boundary as much as you'd like. Hustle. Yeah. Just just, hustle. just, Just go. Just hustle. And so... You're 18, 19, even up to 24, 25. Like, where did you see your life going? What was the goal? What was the plan then? Well, the, the plan from day one was I really, um, you know, I was a student. I was a student of records, right? I mean, you know, I collected records the way other kids collected baseball cards. Um, probably had a couple thousand records by the time I was about 23, 24, because there were flea markets in the city on in the mid-20s, the 23rd, 24th, 25th, where you could buy nickel records. So I used to stockpile nickel records. And I just, 
I was a, like a, a voracious collector. I was looking at the back and just trying to figure out who the songwriters were, who the producers were. I grew up watching a lot of films, so I got really into screenwriting, right? So I nerded out over screenwriters. Like, I wanted to be Albert Brooks or John Hughes or one of these cats, you know? And so with the songwriting, it was the same thing. And as far as my parents went, you know, I... Uh, you know, they unleashed me into the city. You know, I went to school, I dropped out. I went to three colleges in two semesters, which I think is pretty unheard of. And, uh, I ended up, uh, ended up clawing the city, but I really did have one, one singular goal. And that was, I wanted to write with artists and really just be that voice in the room who sort of directed the movie a little bit, you know what I mean? Who wrote the script and sort of, um, it was a trick I learned from Nile Rogers down the road, but I really was, I was early in my head that was in my wiring, which was to constantly try to write the sequel to whatever any artist, doesn't matter if they're unknown or they've just put up their first song or whatever, I'm creating the next movie. Like, where would it go? What's the pivot? What's Weekend in Bernie's too? you know? And, um, that's what I started doing. And the problem was this guy named Kurt Cobain came along, this jerk, and he wrote his own songs. And so it became super, I was 20, and suddenly it was super inherently uncool to collaborate mm. with a guy outside the room. You know, previously, you go back to Appetite for Destruction for GNR or any of those Eagles records, you know, and there's co writers all over these things. Carol King wrote It's Too Late with um, Tony Stern, you know? So there was a place for that person to be in the room who sort of is that other sort of uh, appendage um, creatively but isn't part of the group. And suddenly it, was, it wasn't in vogue anymore. It wasn't cool. And so I had to claw my way through the city at that time, and I had to eat. So I, uh, Bobby, I was a rapper, and I got a record deal as a rapper. Okay, I don't know if you're kidding because I also had a record deal as a rapper. I did. My name is Captain Caucasian. What was your name? Um, we're going to find out. Um, this is the, the, the this could be a Bobby Cast trivia question for mm -hmm. anyone who writes in. But uh, no, nobody writes in. Okay, yeah. that's a problem. <laughs> um, but I did. I did get a record deal with Select Records, which is Atlantic's hip hop record. So they had at the time they had um, Kid and Play, Chub Rock, UTFO. Kid and Play were on top of the world. You what know? year was this, by the way? This is 1991. Okay, so Beastie Boys have been around for a little bit. Beastie's been around. Right. Third Base had come out, and they were big. Like in the Third city. Base, Pop Goes a Weasel, right? Yeah, that was okay. big in the city, and then. The, but the, and then Vanilla, it was where I was shopping when Vanilla, Vanilla Ice came out. And it was funny because Vanilla Ice's label tried to sign me. They flew me down to Plano, Texas, uh, Ultrax Records. And I remember um, pivotal moment in my youth. I'm probably 20 years old, maybe. Yeah, I just probably turned 20. And they took me into a closet and it was all the Vanilla Ice merch. You know what I mean? Vanilla Ice toothbrushes, lunchboxes, you know, whatever. It was like... It was so it was so um, dystopian, and I remember thinking, <laughs> I really like I've entered into like a universe I could never understand. But I made this record, I got signed, I had a video out, and then I got dropped within two weeks. You know what I mean? What's the record? Uh, it's called uh, Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, I've heard of it. And then I have heard big. of it. it was, yeah, that's good, you know, good for you. Big, but after my failed uh, hip hop, what, what was career, wrong with the record? Um, I made it myself. So the biggest mistake was I got a record deal and immediately select tried to hook me up with producers. So Bob power wanted to work with me and he had done a, he had, he had engineered and, um, he had engineered and mixed all those tribe called quest records. And then they hooked me up with these guys, track masters who would go on to do all of the Diddy and Mace stuff and getting jiggy with it and all that nineties, big sample, heavy hip hop. These guys all wanted to work with me. And I, of course, turned it all down to make my own record because I was very headstrong. I didn't want to collaborate with anybody. And I made the worst album ever recorded. So I made this terrible recording and 
I lost my record deal by the time I was, it came out. It was, it was shelled for a year. They finally like threw it against the wall. And then Bobby decided to start rapping with a German accent because I think that was my next pivot. So I felt like I was doing cultural appropriation of, I was an early cultural appropriator. So I started, so started TikTok and cultural appropriation. Yeah, I did. So I started rapping with a German accent and I did that. Um, but why? Like because why, Euro, why, why was that a good idea? Eurodance was beginning to explode. Remember the Berman brothers and Were all that stuff? Were you a different stuff? person? Uh, did you yeah, change yeah, your yeah. name? So yeah. you did. So you did. You have been a German person. You well, that's a terrible German accent, but you'd be like, oh, "I'm German." Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So if you ever watch uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Eddie, she's coaching the Knicks. She's angry Whoopi yelling at the Knicks. Um, my song plays. She's like yelling at a Nick, and it's in the background. You can hear my weird German flow in the background. A little pronounced, but um, <laughs> that didn't work. Hang tight. The Bobby Cast will be right back. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Dot com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food. So the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, to take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me, in this fight, and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. 
one woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer, and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Welcome back to the Bobbycast. Then um, I started making beats, and so that's when I started doing lots of programming and making beats. And Were your beats good on your record, though? You talk about you made your own record. I did. My beats were terrible on my record. So then, I, you know, back then I actually worked with a programmer on it, but then when I started making beats, I actually got an SB12, and my, my beats were all right. I could actually... I could do it, and I sort of had the tricks of the era of all that sort of detuned hip-hop stuff. But Do you think, though, that that bad record, bad you said it, not me, yeah. though the failure there, and I guess the point that I'm hoping that I'm leading us to is that you, there was a lot of learning that happened from that failure. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. Failure, see, the reason I wrote this book is because um, the failure defined me, you know? I read every entertainment bio for the most part, you know, of my peers, certainly songwriter books, et cetera. And a lot of them are um, humble brags, you know, and I understand it. it's part of the game. But for me, what was interesting about my story was the first 15 years of the career, not the second half. The second half's been magical, but it's not why I wrote a book. I wrote a book because the stuff at the front end was so fascinating because I I made every possible tactical and creative error you could ever make. And I always learn from the lessons. So I make my first record and it's a colossalness. And you know what I learned? I need to be a collaborator. I might not be good enough on my own to pull off what I think, what I'm hearing in my head, I'm not able to execute. So then it was like speed dating, um, years of speed dating collaborators to try to find like the magic fit. And so everything was just like this weird learning curve. I started doing music for commercials, doing um, music for industrials, Garnier, Maybelline, all this stuff. And Basically, then I started creating my own groups because I figured if they, uh, if I created the group, they'd have no choice but to sing my songs. Quality theory. I mean, it felt good on paper. Yeah. So um, the first five albums I made were major. I got you know my manager um, Brett was at the time was able to get five major label deals for artists over a two year period, which was unheard of. We had nothing. We had never done anything. I'd never done anything, and. Um, I had the distinction of the first five albums I ever made weren't released. And you go, well, how does that work? Well, because there's no internet, no Spotify, nothing. This is not, you know, whatever, 98, 99, 2000. So no iTunes. So back then it's still physical CDs. And as you know, like a bunch of records, they'd sign 30 acts a year or whatever, but a couple were tax write-offs. Mine were always the write-offs. So <laughs> the first five albums didn't come out. The sixth finally is the one that breaks through. Um, it was a group called Bad Ronald that took out an ad in the Village Voice in New York, cast this thing. We went to, um, we, we recorded at Henson um, in L.A., and I had a panic attack in the middle of it because I knew this was my last shot in this business. And ended up Why did you think that was your last shot, though? Well, because when you have five albums but on major five, labels... But five, such a weird number to go, well, my sixth shirt certainly isn't going to work. Well, because you know what? The phone just wasn't ringing. Got it. You know what I mean? Like, no one's taking my calls. And I think I was somebody who generally people rooted for... But, you know, man, it's like at some point you're like, a, you know, you're a draft pick and some point, you know, you're going to get cut. Your stock isn't there. And that's where I was at. And so I, um, I was just at the very bottom of this thing and we make this album and the floodgates open and I have a song on MTV. Right. And it's the first song ever. Uh, Bad Ronald, Let's Begin. Song on MTV. Most magical feeling in the world. Crying. First song. First song ever, literally in a video. Because up to that, the only TV usage I had was background music in uh, real world Seattle. Um, and it's true. And uh, so I, uh, 
we have this thing, and on the night of the record release, as you remember, you know, record store releases were Tuesdays. So the Monday night before it, most record stores stay open to midnight and you'd have record release Monday nights, you know what I mean? And so all throughout the city, like whatever you were a fan of in New York City, those people would congregate for the record release of that record and you'd go to the record stores. So our record was this, uh, it was the Easy Rider helmet from the movie, American Flag, and it was displayed at 14th and Broadway in the Virgin Megastore and we had the flat on the corner of Broadway Sky high. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, right? So we went to take pictures there uh, directly before it. It was the most magical feeling. I was so excited. And uh, we were there at midnight and uh, mm-hmm. went to bed. Next morning, woke up. It was September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. And as I... St- ran down the street i watched the towers fall from washington square park around the corner and then when i ran uptown and all these people are running towards me covered in soot and all these people are screaming looking for family members they're all congregating in union square so the press trucks are there and the press start photographing and the you know all the news trucks are photographing our album cover with people covered in white dust past the american flag so um the most harrowing just awful um, day obviously in my life and you know I never went back to that store for two and a half years and I didn't fly for two years and Bad Ronald were dropped within three weeks because their record was just like loud abrasive sort of raunchy hip hop and rock hip hop you know and that wasn't what people wanted on September 12th they wanted Nora Jones you know so that was the end for me so uh, I, I the phone stopped ringing and I had to take a side hustle, so I started making beats on kids' bop records. That's not, I'm, I'm serious. And that's why I'm pausing here. I'm serious. So when you say making beats, so you're. Ma- How about this? I wasn't even producing, I was the drum programmer. So you're making as close to as possible, like the real version, but a little softer version of the songs now. Family friendly. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get that job? Uh, Gary Phillips was a uh, guitar player I'd used. He had done session work. He actually uh, did the entire Bad Ronald record. He was amazing. He had produced a singer-songwriter named Michael Tulcher, a record that I'd done that didn't really happen. Um, and he'd become my session guy. And he got the gig as the main producer for Kids Pop. He still is. And he knew that I was having a hard time and he knew that my phone had stopped ringing and I wasn't going to quit. So he gave me like, he started throwing me little things like, Hey, do the Beyonce crazy in love uh, kids, Bob. And as I always say, that's my hot beat on that, man. So in case you tonight want to do the forbidden Mamba to that thing, I got you. (laughs) It's my beat. So So when did you start to reestablish even within yourself who you were? Well, I met a guy who changed my life. I met a guy named Jonathan Daniel. You know, a couple of pivotal things. One, and one thing I need to say is, even in the midst of all the failure and futility, I had the first thing that really changed my life was I met Carol King, and Carol King took an interest in me. And Carol, how did you just meet Carol King? Um, I brought her in on one of these records to sing a record that was never released. A, a female artist named Tarsha Vega and RCA. And she was like an MC, and it was once again acoustics, like sort of like a vibey acoustic hip hop record. And I brought her in, and I, you know, they wanted RCA wanted a feature on the record, and they were suggesting Indiari and people of that era, you know, sort of neo soul. And I suggested Carol King, and Brian Maloof was A and R, and he had a relationship with her camp. And two days later, she came down to the studio to hang out with us, and she sat across from us, and she's looking at Tarsha, and she said, Tarsha. 
I love what you do lyrically. I think it's great. I love the nuances, blah, blah, blah. And Tarsha, God bless her, looked at me and said, well, he writes it. I don't write the stuff. He writes it. So next thing you know, me and, and, um, and Carol and my boy Duke, we locked the door for like, you know, over a year, we probably wrote 10 or 12 songs, I wanted to say. And we just kept, it was a master class. It was like the first person, and specifically for me, it was the first person who really identified something in me beyond the fact that I was mildly amusing, you know? And she, uh, we did this thing and we ended up writing and producing the title track of the last album she ever made. It was the single, the title track. It was like a big gap commercial with her and her daughters, a song called Love Makes the World. And I had a Carol King song. So it was weird as I had five unreleased albums, I had a Carol King song. And then, you know, obviously, you know, my Baja men work, right? So you I do. And I'm going to get to that too. Yeah. That was big. So. Yeah. We got, we got Baja men to come yeah. in a minute but the Carol King and, you know, when that's one of the big headlines that you read about you yeah. Yeah, first, you know, Carol King yeah. first big breakthrough. Yeah. But I wonder if the breakthrough was that as you're writing these songs, did she, and maybe you didn't need it, but did she give you a kind of a reintroduction to your confidence? Yeah. It's just, you know what, because I, I, I entered the building as the fan first, um, I always want to work with all the Brill building cats. You know what I mean? So the notion that somebody so esteemed could find something in my writing, that was a, that offset all the failure to me because at least I felt like I was getting grandmothered into something. So then she told Paul Williams about me and Paul Williams was one of my favorite writers ever. I was a massive Paul Williams fan because he was like me. He was a lyricist and he was sort of kooky. And so suddenly me and Paul and Carol and Duke are writing songs together, right? And she just, she was, she was, she was an advocate for me and I desperately needed it. And so that gave me some currency, um, in my head. And then, but this, you know, a guy named Jonathan Daniel, um, is the guy who really changed my career. He was, um, he's a manager and, you know, he's about, you know, eight years older than me, something like that. And he'd been in hair bands in the eighties at the same, same kind of trajectory though. Like just dancing around all these scenes in the, you know, like in the way I was dancing around scenes in New York city, but never really having his own moment, that breakout moment. He was, uh, he, you know, his band was called candy. It was, and it was Jonathan and Gilby Clark. And then Gilby Clark joins GNR then, you know, and he then became a publisher. He started, he was running the cures publishing company in the U S that sort of ran its course. And he starts a management company called crush management. And he started reaching out to me and he would get advanced copies of all these albums that I was making that weren't getting released. And he would take me out to lunch and give me these pep talks. And he understood, um, what I was pulling from. Right. So he'd sit across from me and say, Oh, that's really cool. You're going for like a bones, how turtles thing on this, or you're going for a love and spoonful thing on this, or you're going for a Dennis Lambert thing, or, you know, these idols, all these songwriters that I idled like an, you know, like an idolized, like a nerd, you know? And, um, he was the only person who understood my references. And he said to me, look, he said, you know, I'm on the precipice of something, but I have a whole wave of bands. They're pop punk. And this is growing into a scene and, uh, we're going to need somebody who, you know, maybe an adult in the room who understands song a, a step more with a few of the acts. And there were these little indie records, no budget fuel by ramen records run out of Jacksonville, you know, a, a dorm at Gainesville originally with John Janik. And, uh, I signed up and the first record ever made, you know, so understand now I'm coming out of it. It ended up being seven albums. I made major label albums, real budgets, right? Real budgets. 
and first five aren't released. The sixth comes out on September 11th, and the seventh was a group called the Cooler Kids that um, DreamWorks folded in the as the record came out. So they were folded in Interscope, and they were dropped. So I've made all these major label records for budgets, and then suddenly here I am, and I'm pitched these records for you know twenty five thousand all in for everything mixing mastering production you know uh, um sample clearances if they mm. used them you know so i'm losing money on these things the first record was called the gym class heroes and i make this record like you said you know and i have my first number one hit so i went from having absolutely nothing in that 35 have a number one hit does it happen like the movie show where you get no calls and then you have a number one hit then all of a sudden the phone's like bang 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 and everybody wants to work with you a thousand percent but what was interesting about it was um one thing jonathan like jonathan daniels basically my guru he's one of my best friends but he's also been my guru and i'm with crush management now too but one thing he told me early on is he said you don't necessarily need to take all the calls you need an infrastructure about three or four people in this business who believe in you who've always been very loyal to you and as long as they're in the position to make some sort of moves that you can just work with those people. And that's what I chose to do. So there was Steve Greenberg at S-Curve. There was James Diener when he was at Octone, you know, um, Interscope. There was, um, you know, uh, the Crush guys and Pete Gambarg and people like, there were people who just like constantly gave me work. So I didn't have to take all that incoming. And it was great for my psyche because I think it's a massive mistake that writers or producers make when they finally enter the zeitgeist you know because you just get so seduced by it you're like oh my god i can't believe i'm getting all these calls blah 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 but you don't realize that you're fly by night to these other people you know that's a transient sort of relationship but the people who sort of rode with you from the beginning will stick with you through the lows because truthfully for every sort of um solid couple of you know um pockets where i'm really killing it then of course there's going to be a fall it happens we all just roller coaster up and down we were talking about before you got here doing the intro for this which, by the way, the book 21 Hit Wonder, which we've been talking about. And you write it, and you're, you've, you're donating the proceeds to every, Musicians every, on Call, right? Yeah, so every penny from my end from this book, uh, from Inception, goes to Musicians on Call. And all my speaking gigs, too. So I've been touring around the country on my own dime. I went to been to 30 universities so far, five high schools. I'm going to get up to 50. And I've done you know everything from a General Motors convention last Tuesday to... Um, you know, music business, uh, colleges convention, the MIA convention in Las Vegas on Friday, every penny that I raise goes to musicians on call. And why? And um, I say that as someone who was on the board for a while and someone I know. who was very Yeah, you've been involved in it. Right. Well the, the the long and short of it is um I knew the gentleman who started it when we were all in our twenties and I didn't really get involved. And then when my dad was in his last days, he was at uh, Mount Sinai, he was in a cancer ward at Mount Sinai. And uh, I just lost my mom, and now my dad's really sick, and I'm in a pretty dark space. And I walk up there, and I hear like a, I hear a man singing in the hallway. He's kind of warming up. And I walk out. It's like an 80-year-old cat with a big bushy beard and acoustic guitar, and he's walking into a room to play for an elderly woman in the next room. And so I waited till he was completed, and I took him aside. I said, like, where do you, you know, who are you? He said, I'm with musicians on call. And literally my face froze because I had... Um, you know, I'd always wanted to get involved, and I felt like this was this weird, divine sort of religious experience. So I immediately signed on, joined, joined the advisory board, and then we have this Christmas group. It's me and Kevin Griffin, Mark McGrath, it's a bunch of us, Lisa Loeb, and we do this thing called Band of Merrymakers, and so we gave proceeds to it, and we started playing in the hospitals and like doing the workshops, and I was doing writing clinics like with kids who were in really tough shape. And it... um 
this is the most valuable work I've ever done. I figured, you know, there's a lot of charities that get a, get a ton of shine and have more financial resources. And I felt, well, if I could do anything to help, it was probably, it was worth it. The Bobby cast. We'll be right back. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. This is the Bobby cast. When you speak at any of the things you said, a, a college, a convention, a um, bunch of executives, What's your one story that you know is going to light the room up? People are going to love it. They're going to be entertained. You may twist and turn on them a little bit, but you know that's your money story. Oh, man. Bobby, the truth is I'm a walking money story. I know. That's why I'm asking you. Like, the, 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 what's, your, what's your antidote that you're like, this is the one 
I want to be known. Not not what song did you write or produce, but what's your one anecdote that you want to be known for? All right, you ready? Yeah. All right, so um, I really think the One Direction one lands a lot because kids like Harry Styles. <laughs> so um, very quickly, I'm um, sitting in a coffee shop in L.A. It's raining, and um, you know everybody in L.A. is scared of rain, so they're all on top of each other. And there's there's a, a meeting going on behind me, and it's a publisher pitching a writer. And I recognize that's Becca Tishker, who's a huge manager and publisher. And she's she's um, pitching the Swedish guy. And he's got very thick accent, very thick accent, you know. And she's like, you know, so you're not doing your band anymore, blah, blah, blah. Or you're, or no, you're starting to write now. You're, doing, you're writing now, blah, blah. He's like, yes, I'm beginning to write and blah, blah, blah. For some reason, I turn around and I look at the sexy fella and I realize that it's uh, Peter Svensson, the guitarist in the Cardigans. And the Cardigans for me were my Nirvana. You know really? Cardigans were my favorite band of the night. By the way, love me, love me, say that you love exactly. me. Exactly. Yeah, for yeah. those that want to hear it perfectly, sing back. By the way, it's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, I, I'm literally fanboying this guy. I interrupt their conversation because I have no filter. And um, we kick it. And she's like, oh my God, you guys should write together. It'd be such a great fit. And, you know, I'm going to bring, I'll add my writer, Kojak, who's a track guy, cool Kojak, and the three of you guys should write. I said, great. So we show up. And secretly, I'm thinking we're going to write a cardigan song. And this is like my, my, my wish fulfillment, you know? <laughs> and I show up at the studio. And these guys, are, these guys are real pop guys. I'm not a real pop guy. I'm quirky. I'm more of a rock guy who sort of just has pop leanings, you know? And I show up and these guys are like, I'm like, yeah, so let's dig in. Let's do something really vibey and cardigansy. And Peter's like, no, I don't. I, I'm not doing cardigans anymore. I said, oh, wow. So we, 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 I said, what should we do? He said, let's write a song for One Direction. Let's try that. And I didn't know what that meant. You know what I mean? I knew What Makes You Beautiful. That, that was the extent of my knowledge. I thought it was an incredible single, but this wasn't my forte. So I went outside and Bobby, I got high like I, I do in these situations. Smoke the reefer. <laughs> and uh, I went outside and um, I just started writing these words. I write these words and I write an entire lyric and I bring it inside to these guys. I have no idea if it's going to land, you know? And 15 minutes, I'm quick, you know, and I bring it in and the guy starts singing and he's got this Swedish accent, you know, very thick. He's like, do you remember summer all nine? Want to go back there every night? And when he's singing, I'm thinking, man, this is, this is like, this is like a Fellini movie, man. This is not going <laughs> to, this is not going to stick, you know? And, uh, we finished this thing, finished the song and I thought it had 0% chance of landing, but I was high and we, you know, ate Thai food and they were nice guys, had a beer. And then uh, I went home, and the next day, they, like, we're getting texts from Simon Cowell and getting texts from Max Martin and Dr. Luke, and everyone's like, rock me equals smash. So secretly, I'm like, oh, my God, what have I been doing in my life, man? Because I've spent my life now at this point. I've worked with, you know, everyone from, you know, I want to say, like, Train and Daughtry to, you know, Carol to, you know, Tom Jones to a million fun bands with funny T-shirts and funny haircuts. I'm thinking to myself, why do I have to work with these like soul sucking artists when I could just literally get high and write like these little <laughs> gibberish words and it lands, you know? So immediately the three of us become like a reading, a writing configuration, right? It's me, Kojak and Peter. And we're going to, we're going to be the next writing team, you know, in LA. And I've just moved to LA, dude. So I'm new to all of this, you know, I'm from a very different thing in New York and suddenly it's like teams and, you know, and I start digging in and we write for, uh, 
30 days straight, we write the 30 worst songs ever written. And the crazy thing is I'm the problem, not those guys. Those guys are really good, but they're dialed in. They're like, let's do Selena Gomez today. I don't know what that is. You know what I mean? So I'm sitting there going, oh, cool, man. I'm going to write like a Smith song, you know? So I'm writing some Morrissey stuff and they're like, wait, 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 no, this isn't landing. It makes no sense. It's not logical. I'm like, but it is, it's deep, you know? So you can see the novelty's wearing off. I'm flying back to Boston, right? And I'm on a plane to Boston from LA and you know, Peter sends me a voice note and now he's cutting my verbal lungs because it's now he's giving me a lyric and it says, you must sing. I got to, got to go. I got to, got to, got to. And he's like all these got tos, right? And I'm on the plane and I'm literally sitting in this seat and I'm beginning to sweat. I'm so angry. I'm like, why is he making me sing gatas? I don't want to sing gatas. I want my own words on this melody. And so I text him in the plane. He's like, no, it has to be gata. You got to gata. He kept saying that back and forth, the weirdest exchange. Like one of those things where you're like, how are we adults? And this is what we get paid for, you know? And, uh, I finally at the last text back and forth, I was like, yeah, I just don't feel this man. Those guys never work with me ever again. Okay. Now here's the only problem driving my kid to school a year later. And I'm listening to kiss in LA and Ariana Grande's, uh, love me harder comes on. Mm. You got to, got to love me harder. And I heard the gatas and I hadn't heard gata in a chorus like this repeated, and I just turned to my daughter. She's like six or seven. She's probably seven or eight. And I was like, can you uh, just type something into my phone? Just type writer Ariana Grande, love me order. Peter Svensson. So, you know, I've played that one wrong. But uh, <laughs> that, that was my only foray into One Direction and straight ahead pop stuff. And obviously, it's probably not what I do best. You know a song I love? I was playing it on my radio show just a couple weeks ago. It's a new Weezer song, Records. That's a fun duty. And again, it's so... it Now that I've spoken with you and kind of hear the macro version of what you're about, even that song starts with what that song is. Yes. And when you talk about how you perceive music and you want to get to what to get to fast... I think of old songs like Sweet Emotion. It starts, mm-hmm. right? Aerosmith's mm-hmm. Sweet Emotion starts mm-hmm. with the chorus. Mm-hmm. That's it. It comes back to that, but that's that's the heat of the song. Mm-hmm. When record starts, it's the whole... It's you go for the jugular. Right at yeah. it. You know, the thing about records is uh, I, I, um, I started writing that with Rivers during the pandemic, um, the front end, like late 20 or something like that. I was, at, I was in Cape Cod, and I pulled out an acoustic, and I was singing this idea, and I kept singing, I got records in my head, and I felt like it could land, you know? And um, I got on Zoom with them, and we kept kicking it back and forth. We kicked it back and forth about a year, year and a half. And... It was amazing because I really, we kept debating. There was like an internal debate, I think, about front loading the hook to that extent. But that's why it works to me. Like it just, And the second hook, just sonically, is a little different. It's a little harder. You know, yeah. I got wrecked. And then the second one comes around. Because he pops the octave. Yeah. Is, that's my, tra- you know, like, man, in, in my writing, it doesn't matter if it was, you know, when we were doing the boys like girls or we the kings or metros any of those things like the one thing i love is when a chorus just explodes i like melodies that are kind of static down sitting in a little box because that comes from the hip-hop stuff right so i love melodies that are somewhat linear and then that gives you room to just have like this big cabal sort of octave jump and records does it right like that first chorus you you know like oh it's sort of restrained rivers and then when he hits the top note you're like wow so i love weezer i wear i I was visually impaired my right eye doesn't work and i was like man there's nobody cool that wears glasses right rivers huge inspiration to me because i was like oh he's nerdy but awesome yeah and he's, he's so awesome that he's not nerdy he's the coolest guy and i want to be that guy he's the coolest and so here's my quick weezer story yeah 
I worked on American Idol for four years you did. as the head, head mentor. I'd mm-hmm. work with the, the, the kids, some young adults, on everything from song selection to uh, how to sing it, tempo, being interviewed. They just had me there as the uh, Swiss Army knife. Right. And at the end of every season, everybody would come in. All the big stars for, for duets, right? And sure. this artist would be with this person, and Weezer was coming in. Now, I had never met wow. anyone from Weezer, and I was freaking pumped. I'm jaded. Not in a way of, I don't care, but I've seen everybody. I know that most people that I think are awesome in music, sometimes they're not, sometimes they are, but they're just normal folks. 100%. So, sometimes abnormal, but not in the way you prefer. Absolutely. But a Weezer, right? There's like three or four in my whole life that I'm like, I would totally fanboy out. And Weezer's playing the finale of American Idol. So I let my producer know. I say, hey, I'm just letting you know, I'm a massive Weezer fan. Right. And the whole season, people have been in and out. But I'm not going to go in. Like, hey, would you sign yeah. this? Can I take a picture? I said, Weezer's coming. And if it's cool, I'd like to walk out and just say hello. And they're like, yeah, of course. They're like, it's your show too. There's five, there's five of you on this show. Is Luke, Lionel, Katie, Ryan, and myself. Right. And so we kind of had free reign over everything. And I said, I'm going to walk out to the bus if that's cool. And they're like, yeah, sure. So they come in. And I go to the record store down by where the lot was. And I get the the blue vinyl. Yes. Because the that blue album for me was... Yeah, it was near Amoeba, right? It was right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it was what I was. I'm a blue guy more than a Pickerton guy myself. I it took me later in life yep, I agree. to understand and appreciate. I agree. So, but blue, loved it immediately. Yeah. I go get it, big vinyl. I walk up, I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. I'm an adult man. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous. Like, yeah, I say, hey guys, my name's Bobby. I'll be working with you guys later tonight. I'm the head mentor here on American Idol. I'm not even going to fake it. I'm just a massive fan. Do you care? If would you guys sign this? And like, yeah, come on in. And so I don't, I don't see Rivers at all. And so all the other guys are around, and they're super cool, and they're signing. Hey man, what are you at? Where are you, where are you from? I'm from Arkansas. Where, you guys, da, da. all the small talk, mm-hmm. but to me it means a little more than that. Mm-hmm. To them, just another dude knocking mm-hmm. on the bus door. And so the into the star bunk, the door opens and it's Rivers. He just kind of opens it and kind of looks in and he sees me and the little bat. He's like. You know, fixing his face, like, like a little mirror, like fixing his hair, doing a little teeth thing. And I'm just going, all right, there he is. Of all the things that I can say, I like, it's like an elevator pitch. And I'm not pitching anything. <laughs> I just want to let the guy know, but I don't want to let him know so hard that he's creeped out. It's sure. a fine line. Sure. But I never met him. Right. And so he looks at me and I don't want to yell, hey, will you sign this? But I wanted him to sign this. Yeah. And so... He goes back to his thing, looks at me again, and he starts to take a step toward me. And I'm like, I, you, you, my heart starts it. to beat a little bit. I'm like, this is my moment right here. It's this about to be it. time. He takes about a half step forward and then shuts the door and goes no. back in the room. <laughs> no. And it wasn't toward me. It no. wasn't toward me. It wasn't toward anything I did. That, you know, I was in, I was in his personal space. Can I ask space. you a question? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is that album still unsigned in that space? They sent it back with him. Okay. And he was cool enough to sign it. All right, because I was going to take care of that for you. You know, and I wasn't upset, actually. I appreciated that no, because he, that was a dude being who, exactly who he was. He's awesome. I got to say something about Rivers, which is, you know, what, one thing I would say is Rivers, Pat Monahan, you know, Fitz, like a few of these cats who I, I really love. And I, I, I pretty close with the one thing I'll tell you about all of them is the work ethic is like nothing you've ever seen. Rivers writes like three songs a day. Like just absolutely per, just to permeate a Weezer record for me is like, holy grail because honestly i'm competing with the 10 songs rivers wrote last night he's so prolific and really good and 
Monahan is the same way and Fitz is the same way. These guys work so hard and we're all the same age. So the notion that like, you know, you can be this grown ass guy and just hit like aggressively want it that bad and chase the art that to that extent. I mean, Rivers, I learned that from more than any other artist. I've never seen somebody work as hard as Rivers does. Next time you talk to him, tell him I love him. It's awkward. I didn't get a chance to tell him that. It's a little awkward. But be very awkward and say, Bobby loves you. No, I'm actually going to say to him, like, dude, honestly, like... You shut the bus door on him. You kind of put the... the, You kind of bust him, (laughs) you know? I met Pat probably January of this year for the first time. Wow. We were at Pebble Beach playing the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And so I guess this year they finally thought I was famous enough to be invited. Yeah, I'd pitch on it. And so, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And so I go out. I heard he's not bad. He's pretty good. Yeah. And so, but he was also super kind. He's a great guy. Like overly kind to the, where I was like, man, you do not have to be this nice. But he wasn't being anything that he wasn't. He's the best. And I went and asked a couple other friends that have played it. He was like, oh yeah, Pat Monahan. He's like the greatest dude. Oh no, he's my guy. Like I owe owe Pat so much. He's an incredible friend. And honestly, he's always, he's, he's so funny. He's so quick and he doesn't suffer fools. He's really, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Let's take a quick pause for a message from our sponsor. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events, there is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in HOPE. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered, travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things. And financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, how do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, 
despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Stu's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. And we're back on the Bobby cast. Uh, Bobby, one thing I did want to say to us in the six degrees between us, Mm -hmm. do you know where we cross in the greatest way? (sighs) You got to dig this. Dancing with the stars. Mm -hmm. John Schneider. Oh, yeah. Went to my high school. Really? Duke's, Duke's a hazard. He is from upstate New York. What? Nobody knows that fact. What? I didn't know that. I'm going to throw that out for all the foxes out there, but John Schneider attended Fox Lane High School. The reason I know that, which is a little interesting aside, is I did always want to get out, and I wanted to get out in the world and do something, you know, something loud in this business. When I was in ninth grade, I used to take the bus every um, Friday after school, and I'll go to the Bedford Hills Library, and upstairs on the third floor, this little like beat up building, they kept old yearbooks, like the stacks from historically from our high school. So I found both the our our um, our Illuminati were uh, John Schneider and Susan Day from the Partridge Family in L.A. Law. And I would find their yearbooks and then I would start to create these composites in my brain of how we could have been friends and who they hung out with. I'm trying to figure out who they hung out with and stuff. I just, I was obsessed with it. So yeah, the John Schneider reveal. So John Schneider. That shouldn't be from upstate New York. They should have made sure to meet him. money earned in Mount He was quite good looking as a as a young guy. Yeah. Good looking older guy, but like really good looking younger guy. No one's ever accused me of that. I didn't know you were younger. I, I might fall in love with you then too. No, the, you know I have big doughy features, and I've always have, so they're kind of exaggerated. I wouldn't say you're doughy at all. Cartoonium, but, yeah. yeah. Ringo Starr. Yeah, he's a bully. Um, Ringo Starr. Honestly, show up at Ringo's house. You know, a buddy of mine, Winston Simone, one of the great managers, one of my favorite managers ever in this business. Winston Simone connects me with uh, word had gotten out that uh, Ringo was open to new collaborators because he's got a really tight circle, right? It's Luca Third, it's Joe Walsh, it's um. Do you get nervous Alan about Hay. the Ringo though? You've been with a lot of people, but it's a Beatle. I don't get Ringo. I don't get nervous with anybody, and maybe, still, yeah, it's probably you know, and that's and honestly it goes back to like the Warhol thing. I think you know what I mean. Like when you're exposed to stuff mm-hmm. so young, you just get kind of numb to it. Maybe nervous isn't the word, and I don't get nervous really either. Same, like, I don't get, but but still, I was excited, but to, to meet Rivers. Oh, I mean, I was definitely stoked, you know. Yeah, okay. Like, I mean, he's Ringo, you know what I mean? Like, but I was able to at least I was composed, which helps, you know. And um, I would say I showed up to the house and we we dug in, you know, and we sat down on the couch and right off the bat, I was like, peace of love, peace of love. And then with like six seconds, it was like he was grilling me like the toughest job interview in history. Um, for what reason? Well, I just think like, you know, he probably, you know, he's got his guard up. I think he's probably trying to figure out my motives of why I'm so psyched to work with him, et cetera, you know? And it uh, it was very interesting because I really, I tried to punch back whenever he'd say something, I tried to say something witty back and it wasn't landing. And I thought, okay, I've literally screwed up this one opportunity. I'm in my car driving home and I said to him, I said, look, I said, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to write a song. And if you'll have me back tomorrow, I'll play for you. He said, come at two o'clock. 
So I came back, I wrote this tune, and my my boy Grant Michaels, my uh, my engineer programmer, is a writer, really talented kid. He uh, he reharmed what I was going for because I was trying to do some really Randy Newman-y kind of chordal stuff, and I'm you know I'm somewhat limited. And I went and sang Ringo the tune, and he's sitting there. It's Ringo and his engineer Bruce Sugars, his engineer producer, great guy. And these guys are just they deadpan me, and I sing it, and you know my voice is you know isn't the sexiest tone it's sort of like you know it's that guy in the budweiser commercial that you turn down you know and uh so i sing this thing for him and ringo goes huh that's absolute shit (laughs) (laughs) and i was like wow and he's so dry and i'm trying to read him and he goes no i'm joking joking i love it i love it he said but you know what you sang me a song i'm just gonna cut you a song and I said, well, I didn't sing you a second verse or a bridge. He said, hmm. And next thing you know, he just ripped into it and wrote a second verse. And this guy, like, comes alive at a level I've never seen. And his energy is freakish. He's jumping up and down. And I said, it's like one of these kids at a rave. You know, he's like pogoing. And he's 80 at the time. Well, he's probably like 78 at the time. He's pogoing up and down the best physicality in the world. He's running behind the kid. I'm watching Ringo play and his pocket is so nasty and he's doing all the sort of tricks that all he the Ringo still stuff. Do them. Nasty. No embellishment. Incredible feel. His pocket's crazy and he's doing all the hand percussion. He's singing. He's doing everything. He's running around the room and I looked at him and it was the first moment I really like felt like, man, if this is how people age now, like I'm all right with it, you know what I mean. And it's funny because I, over a period, you know, I've worked with some some incredible greats of the era, right? Carol King, Ringo, um, the OJ's, Eddie Levert, my God, Eddie and Walter, um, uh, Tom Jones, uh, Joe Cocker. One thing I'll say about all these people, Mike Love, they all. They're in the most incredible physical shape. It's humbling. Like every single time, like, you know, I had a night with the OJs and we went out, we, they, they played the Apollo theater and then we all went out for drinks at some hotel bar and it's two in the morning and Eddie Levert is going. He's like, we're not done. We're not done. He's dancing around more Blanco, you know, these guys like they live it. And the fact that they have that energy makes me just feel so good as a, you know, as I hit 30 now. I felt that. You know what I mean? I got four final questions. Number one is I was watching, my TikTok lets me watch a lot of late 60s, early 70s, especially singer-songwriter, kind of acoustic. I want your TikTok-ish. That's where I, that's where I live, and, and 90s wrestling. You know what mine is? What? Mine's usually like, it's usually like a, a, a young artist, usually from Nashville or something along the lines, and it's like, hey, they're in their car, and the camera's looking at me and they go, hey, I just broke up with my girlfriend today and I wrote a song about it. You want to hear it? And then they do the fake turn of the dial and then they lip sync along to it for a second. They do a lot of hand movements and that's when I just keep scrolling past. Sorry, I digress. That's yeah, it. I, I don't live there. I yeah. see those sometimes. Yeah. They said to me, but I don't live there. I want to live where you live. All right, so go ahead. Sorry. Where I live is cool. No, yeah. where I live is cool because I, I see a lot of Tom Jones singing either live or like on a television studio Beast. set. I had no idea because the Tom Jones version that I know from my life is older Tom Jones. It's a caricature. Yeah. Oh, he's a beast. He's a real soul singer. One of the best I've ever heard. Like that good. I watched him and Ray Charles sing together. No, he he back and forth. Yeah, Tom Jones had all the respect. I mean, like he's literally look, he's one of those British like 
sort of just like soul like legends. It was so good. Yeah, no, it, it's funny because like his pop cultural presence, I think, is so different from actually the core of his voice. He's a singer. And then I heard him sing later, maybe like two years ago, on The Voice in Another Country. Yeah. As an older guy, still sings and still sings. So yeah, I, I just had no idea. My, you know, I'm like a fetishist for um, raspy vocals. You know what I mean? So coming out of the UK, there's all those those cats like Tom Jones or Chris Rhea, who's like very forgotten. But Chris Rhea, you know, certainly in the states over there, he's big. But like, it's a gravel. And when singers come along and have that British gravelly thing, man, I'm the first guy at the record store. You know what I mean? Every single time, it's my favorite voice, Cocker. I mean, come on! It's like literally, like, 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 literally, like, like, like if you're gonna sweat that much when you sing, I need to appreciate that. Exactly. But Joe Cocker, like, you know, you're one third of the way into a Cocker show, or I would watch him live. I didn't get to go watch him in person, yeah. But I would watch Cocker live. The guy's pouring sweat, like wiping himself down, well, singing ballads. Well, the problem is, like, the bar was so high. You know, these guys, the performance level and the and the and the way they just left it all out on the stage. And there are very few singers I would say the same thing about now. It's not the same level of commitment, you know? Like, Cocker's thing was unbelievable. It's just... And to cover a Beatles song... uh, You're right, right. And there are a lot of... And listen, I love a lot of Joe Cocker, but I think how ballsy to cover a Beatles song, period. But then you do have big balls when you do it and you nail it. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest covers ever. And the intro, it's so... Was it the Wonder Years? It, it was. Years, it was right? ahead. Of, yeah. So you know, it was. You know, once again, it's that intro. I mean, you are so like that's an intro that'll suck you in. You instantly know that record right off the bat. And I mean, his commitment level on that vocal. And I'm with you, man. Like I, I feel like um, I feel like when people bludgeon um, classics, it's um, you know that's just it's just it's a it's a no can do for me. You know what I mean? He kind of sucks you in at, at the beginning of all of his songs. I mean, even going, you are so beautiful to me, right? The piano yeah. comes on and it's, and it's so, you, it's just, it's that first yeah. vocal note. And you're yeah. like, well, this is different. How about you can leave your hat on or any of the 80s stuff? I mean, it was just consistent, you know? It um, really, really, and, uh, one of the greatest singers. I didn't get to know him or anything. He just cut one of the songs, but he uh, he's incredible, you know? So my second book that I wrote was called Fail Until You Don't. And... It was basically me just screwing up. Right. And in some of the conversations we've had, right. I knew the answers to. I would just wanted to walk down it with you. But I knew, listen, you your rap career didn't go well. Uh, a DJ, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't near as good as I am, let's be honest. Oh. You know, I've made look, a big career out of this, and you've done me. fair at what you're doing. I do have a face for radio. <laughs> so you have all, but why, why was it important to you in this book to showcase the difficult times as the main theme? I'll tell you, because... Um, you know, my daughter's 17, so what is that, Gen Z or whatever. You know, I'm scared for these kids because when you have um, when you have so much technology at your hands and so much, everything is just pulling at your attention 24 hours a day, I'm scared that these kids might not have the same work ethic because I think they might get just constantly pulled and like, hey, I don't want to do this very long and maybe I'll do this job for six weeks and maybe I'll do this and quit this and quit this and quit this. And I stuck something out against improbable odds and... It was the greatest decision of my life, and I think I'm. I I believe there. Are, I I, I want to speak to two people with this book. One to the youth, just to say there is a pathway, but I want you to be aware of what you're entering. Right, you have to understand you're going to get failed two thousand times, two thousand no's. Matt Del Negro and Buddy's book. It's like two thousand no's. It's just the truth. You're gonna. You're the rejections. 
you have to use them as scars. You know, you have to take those scars and take those calluses and have them fuel you to go forward. And, but if you don't have that wiring and if you're going into this delusionally thinking, okay, like once again, like I got TikTok famous last night, I had a song that went viral, blah, blah, blah. You don't understand what you're in for if you want to do this as long as I've been doing it. The rejections will mount at a freakish level and I just want people to be aware of it, but there is a way out. And the other thing is I really wanted to reach anybody who has creative wiring who just might have packed it in early, you know, because I was blessed. Look, I came up in the city and, you know, we're in the East Village in New York. And I would say if I came up with like a hundred cats in that time, you know, five, six of us left doing it. You know what I mean? Like most people went on to different things, some because they lost interest and others because they just couldn't feasibly make it work anymore. I kind of want to speak to those people and say, you know what, give it another shot. Give it another shot. It's not, you're not done by any stretch because honestly, if you uh, are as tenacious about it as I was, you can probably, you know, I don't know what goal, you know, you have to ascertain your own goals, but like you could, you know, you could do something special. It's just, uh, here's case in point of somebody who was like moderately gifted at best when he started and just got better, you know? Third question of four, why now though? Um, because I, I felt like I was still like mildly culturally relevant and my fear was, you know, in a decade from now, some of these songs might not have the same resonance and I want to do it when people actually might still take my phone calls, you know, including a publisher. It's like, you know, I don't know if a book deal, you know, in 10 years from now, if a publisher would have been interested, but also look, we're in such a crazy time, right? We're entering into the AI phase and all these other, um, you know, technological advances that are going to just absolutely affect the music. It's just obvious where all the stuff is headed. And it felt like a nice moment to pivot creatively for a second and to just get out of the fray, clear my head, write everything. This is all me. There's no co-writers or ghostwriters. It's literally 300 zillion pages of my, my psyche. But I felt like this was like a rinse out. And then I'm going to come back with like just stronger than ever because I feel so creatively sort of motivated because I needed the break. My final question, just two words with a question mark at the end of it. Aries. Close. Okay. Baja men, question mark. All right, so you guys are all very familiar with who let the dogs out, so let's not make it weird between us. Couldn't be more. Yeah, so I didn't do that one. Okay. I did, I did the follow-up. It was called Move It Like This. <laughs> it, was, it was recorded in the Bahamas with the Baja men. A couple of little fun facts for you. One of the Baja men stole my headphones. And didn't return them, which was kind of dark. So if you ever like are on a cruise ship and you see one of the Bahamian guys wearing a nice, uh, nice pair of Panasonic headphones from back in the day, I think you could make a case for me. Second of all, um, we did get yelled at. We we're in the <laughs> there was a McDonald's in the Bahamas, and uh, me and Mike Mangini, my buddy, um, and Dave Schomer, we uh, we were working with these guys, and we had a twelve noon session. And Mike walked through the door at 12.02, carrying a couple bags of McDonald's for us. And the leader of the Bahamans screamed at him about being late and that McDonald's should never be a priority. And by the way, remember I didn't learn from mistakes, right? I've learned from mistakes. I have never let McDonald's be a priority in my, you know, my bookings ever again. You never know where you will learn something. From a Bahaman. It could be in the Bahamas with the Bahamaman. You know, I gambled down there. We went to the we went to the Paradise. What's it called the what's a compass? What's what's a big casino? And uh, I don't know. I've been down there, but I didn't go to the casino. Yeah. I trust it. There's a casino, so uh, you know, and I, I won like nine hundred dollars, which was so huge for me. And I'm so cheap, you know. Everyone's goading me. They're like, double down, double down. I'm like nine hundred dollars. This is a new stereo, and I took it back to York and I bought this shitty stereo. It's amazing. 
proudest moment of my life. Listen, this has been, I could do this for two hours. Hey. We've done over an hour here. I'm just a massive fan of your work. Brother, I'm a bigger fan. And honestly, this, you have no idea how much it means to me, man. You're, you're, a, you're an icon. You're a beacon of light for the community. And uh, also, you did great work with music, uh, Musicians on Call, which I know of. So it's awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate the time. Everybody, 21 Hit Wonder, if they want to order it. Yeah, I mean, just go to Amazon and, you know, and order it. And um, if they have any questions, they can always hit me on the gram. I'm on the gram. Just give out your number. They'll text you. Yeah, they can. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's good. Thanks. All right. Uh, you guys follow Sam. Sam Hollander on Instagram. Uh, 21 Hit Wonder is the book. And you still making money off all these songs? They're still coming in pretty regularly? I regular? sold my catalogs. You so, did? Yeah. Is that in the news? At how much? It was. Uh, th- I would never let that out, but, you know, it was great. So I did it in uh, 2019 to Hypnosis. and um, Sold it all? I did. Over $10 million? Um, <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter. Okay, all right. As I always said to my daughter, <laughs> over $10 million doll hairs. So, no, I did great. And um, and everything I have going forward since 2019 is mine, and hopefully I'll sell another one. But what it did was it really freed me up to do things like this and, you know, just be a better human. When did you write records? Um, that's 2021, so I own we're, records. We're on the way. We're on our way. That's we're the beginning. The that's the next I wave. I got records in my head. Jam. Love Sam, it. thank Love you, buddy. Dog. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to a BobbyCast production. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.